Hello, welcome to the Theology Podcast. We're really glad to have you with us. It's summertime and the living is easy, as they say, but things aren't so easy, it seems like, in the United States anyway, and many parts of the Western world. Maybe we'll get to some of that today. But uh, I am uh, C.R. Wiley. I'm the senior pastor of the Presbyterian Church of Manchester. I've written some things, and I've got a book that I'm nearly done with on Tom Bombadil, and I'm excited about what that could uh, what that could uh, mean uh, uh, for people who read it. Anyway, that's me. So, uh, Glenn, how about you? I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a professor of history at Central Connecticut State University, senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, and the founder of Every Square Inch Ministries. And you've been doing some things with that uh, here recently. I noticed you had a couple of webinars. Yeah, I did a webinar a couple of weeks ago on critical theory and race, and I'm doing one this Wednesday, July 1, on um, what happened to evangelicalism. I think that one really ought to go viral. We need, people, need to fig, people need some insight on what went wrong. Anyway, so Tom. Tom Price, a systematic theologian, Christian ethicist, uh, teaching both at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, and yeah, a lot of irons in the fire, pulling some of them out, hammering them down, but uh, I need to have them made into swords here quickly uh, in that <laughs> <Right>. process. <laughs> right, right. Well, I wanted to talk about a couple things before we jump into the show today, and this is kind of like part two of a theme that you introduced last week, Tom. So you're going to be kind of running the, the operation today. But before we do that, I want, to, I want to say something that's good news. Our Indiegogo campaign is, is over 50% funded. And I got an, an email from one of our supporters. And this is what I, I guess you call a challenge grant. Uh, he's promised $1,000 in matching gifts for anyone who makes a pledge uh, this, from this point on. So we were at... $2,025. We're now at $2,075. Uh, but from $2,025 onward, your $50 becomes $100. Your $100 becomes $200. You get the point. So we only have about two weeks to go. I think it's like 16 days as of today, That you know, the day of our recording, which means it'll probably be 13 days by the time you hear this on Monday, and then maybe seven days by the time we're on the FLF network. So uh, Please, uh, you know, look into the uh, the campaign on Indiegogo. Uh, there will be a link in the show notes. There's going to be a link in our YouTube channel. And we really hope that you can uh, help us out with that because it's uh, going to help us improve the show. And the other thing I wanted to talk about was something that just came in the mail. <laughs> and this was uh, partly inspired by Glenn, partly inspired by you, Tom, and, and partly inspired by riots. This <laughs> is the title page for Martin Luther's Against the Murderous Thieving Hordes of Peasants. Oh. <laughs> this, was his, this, was, this is what led to the great crackdown on uh, the, uh, I guess, the 16th century version of, uh, I don't know, Antifa. Antifa. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> so, but anyway, it's going on my wall, and it was inspired. Uh, it, it's, it's sort of like a, I don't know, like a, like a statue. <laughs> putting on my wall but Guard no one's gonna be able to get at it and deface well. it <laughs> anyway so tom tell us what we're talking about okay well i always like to, to deal with topics using 
terms that most people don't use every day. So last week it was presentism. That's <laughs> why we week, pay you the big bucks. <laughs> that's right. This week it's historicism. Um, but I do have to kind of uh, reconnect this to what we were talking about last week because there's sort of a, a, an aim of continuity here. Um, and, and presentism, um, as we talked about it last week, was the way in which there is, there is this sort of new iconoclasm, if you will, or new zealotry um, that takes the, the, the present moment um, and the kind of ideal types that that present moment offers and allows them to become a sword to kind of slay everything in the past and everything in the present that doesn't meet up to that ideal type. And so it's a way in which somebody is allowed to have a kind of moral superiority um, and a, a kind of a pure self-righteous disposition and insight from their experience of, of, of being passionate about this certain ideal and it allows them sort of to um, move with, you know, I use maybe a bit, maybe a strong imagery, but a baby with a machine gun, if you will, <laughs> or, 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 or a teenager. Something out of Looney Tunes. <laughs> yes. Or, or, or maybe, maybe a teenager, a better idea is a teenager with a machine gun where it first discovers that there's some imperfections in the world and therefore it goes on a lever, le, uh, a leveling campaign um, to, which, to is, which is a nice way of saying killing everything. Killing everything <laughs> that has not met, that that has had um, has had to to use history um, to to otherwise advance certain um, ideals and goods. I don't know if that makes too much sense, but. But um, that's sort of what we were talking about. And we talk about a lot of the ironies tied up with this kind of modern concept. I mean, we, it really kind of showed itself up in, especially in the humanities in, in the university, um, where you basically, it started, well, okay, we've reached a certain level of historical consciousness that um, the past treated women in a certain way that they weren't equal sharers in social power. So therefore, every piece of literature and history and figure, even if they helped contribute to the current consciousness of that reality, has to somehow be dismantled or eliminated from the canons of learning and appreciation because it didn't match the, the kind of pure type that we now have access to. Um, and, and so it, it, it sort of, it, the irony sits in this. We, we recognize that we don't, we've never would have arrived at a certain level and in interpretation of these ideals if it was not for a certain history that allowed them to become conscious to us, right? Right. But I'm then right. what we do almost in a Gnostic and idealist way, lift ourselves up out of that even though we're indebted to it. And then we're allowed to kind of transcend it through, through our own kind of resources and through this kind of concept. And then we're allowed to come back down on it and kind of, you know, well, use the board. I'd like to just pause briefly because I know you want to move on to historicism, but briefly yeah. on, on uh, the irony that you note 
Yeah. I think it's, it's even more fundamental than these people are capable of even appreciating. Yeah. I remember standing in Harvard Divinity School looking at the bulletin board. You know what it's yeah. like to look at bulletin boards and places <laughs> like that. And I remember thinking, these people don't even know how much they take for granted. They, have no, they, they can't know what they don't know. Yeah. Furthermore, they actually are indebted to capitalism and the industrial processes that capitalism unleashed in ways that make uh, their particular hobby horse even plausible. You know, it, in other words, prior, it, it wasn't so much that, you know, women in the 17th and 16th and 15th and earlier centuries were dumb and suddenly they got smart. It was that the world was fundamentally different and that it was absolutely inconceivable for people to imagine things working any other way because we didn't have the surplus capital. We didn't have the kind of mechanical uh, productive power, mechanistic productive power that makes the, the kind of the margins uh, appear that allow us to exercise the kind of personal freedom that we enjoy today. So these people are, are indebted to many of the people that they despise in deep, deep ways. And I actually think that this is part of the reason. I, I suspect that there's a suspicion on their part that they are indebted and they despise the fact that they're so weak that they could never have pulled this off without that help. Yeah, it's, this, it's kind of like this Freudian and Oedipal kind of <laughs> complex where they need to kill off. The, That's it. They have to kill off the benefactors. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we can, we can add to that that when you are trying to create a utopia, which is what we're really doing, yeah, what these movements are doing. Um, number one, all utopians are totalitarian. It's, almost, it, it's not technically in the definition, but it might as well be. They cannot tolerate anything close to dissent because dissent could pre prevent you from reaching the promised land. Which means that one of the first steps historically, whenever you're going toward a utopian society, is to destroy the past. And, you know, if you take a look at the current wave of iconoclasm, and I'm using that term intentionally here, um, you know, it starts with down the Confederate statues, but then the 84th uh, Regiment, which was an all-black regiment that fought in the Civil War, their monument is defaced, and abolitionist statues are destroyed, and Holocaust memorials are destroyed. And there's a call to remove all images of white Jesus from churches and stained glass windows and statues and everything else. And if you think it's going to start with white, it's going to stop with white images, you're hopelessly naive. Well, I, I remember. Uh, it's, about, it's about slashing and burning everything. Yeah, I, I, saw, I saw a statue of Don Quixote of all people have been defaced. Don Quixote. <laughs> Talk about idealism. <laughs> tilting at windmills, including the people who are tilting at the statue of Don Quixote. And I, but you know, the thing is, is it reveals a tremendous amount of stupidity and ignorance. I mean, because these people clearly don't know what any of these statues represent. Yeah. And I don't know that they don't know. It's more that they don't care. They've got the, the whole program, frankly, really revolves around destroying our culture, destroying Western civilization, destroying anything resembling it. So anything that's connected 
to what Western tradition has to come down. Because well, keep any yeah. remnant of it in place, you can't eliminate it. Well, what, what we want to do, I think, is basically uh, just take these people and put them somewhere and let them try to work it out and uh, just make sure that they can't affect anybody else. You know, it's the old containment strategy that we used with mm -hmm. the Soviets. If we, if we could figure out how to do that. How about a six-block area in Seattle? <laughs> that's right, the one that's, complete, that's completely uh, deserted now and people are going, finally going home? Yeah, after, no. after four shootings that had nothing to do with the cops? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, brother. It's, it's anyway, fine. Tom, we've, we've hijacked the show enough. Why don't you, why don't you take us back? <laughs> I, think, I think there's a, a film based on a book out recently. Um, I, I think it was called there's no there's no I think it's something along the line there's no murder in utopia or, or there's no murder in the promised land but it was about the Soviet Union and the way in which <laughs> murder was a part of capital right. and it was a part of you know, the, the evolution and so therefore it became even as a term you couldn't even mention the fact that there was a murder that took yeah, you're kind of cutting in and out on this a little bit, to Tom. To admit that fact was to admit that there was a... Okay. Am I okay you're, now? Yeah, you're, you're coming back a, a little bit, but you're, you're pretty choppy, a little choppier than normal. Okay. Well, yeah, um, while, while you're attending to that, maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe uh, Glenn and I can sort of work with that a little bit. The... Uh, in other words, we can't talk about all the people that the communist regime murdered because that would be an admission that, you know, there was murder and that communism failed. That sort of thing. So it leads to a kind of, uh, you know, blindness, willful blindness, because we don't want to deal with certain, certain things. No, people aren't blind. They know what's happening. They're just afraid to talk about it. So we're back to, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, Václav Havel's essay, The Power of the Powerless. And in it, he talks about people who, you know, they, they're, they're told to put up a sign that says workers of the world unite in their windows. And they know that it's an empty slogan, that it's meaningless, but they put it up anyway. And... He says that if you instead told them to put up a sign that said, I'm a weak person, and so I just do what I'm told, whether I believe it or not, they would all say, no, 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 I'm, I'm, I won't do that. But because of this sort of abstract workers of the world united, I mean, who could really argue with that? You know, we'll go along with it, even though they know fundamentally it's a lie and it doesn't represent what they believe. And his point is that the power of the powerless really lies in refusing to play the game, refusing to go along to get along, refusing to put the sign in your window. Yeah, there are a lot of slogans like that, a lot of signs that people put up today that, are, right. that, that, that reminds me of. Yeah, but, but the point is here that, you know, murder doesn't happen. We can't talk about murder, so we don't talk about murder. It doesn't mean people don't know murders aren't, are happening. It's just, it's one of these topics that you can't talk about because it will get you in trouble. You look like your, 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 your video isn't clipping as much as it was, Tom, so I think you're back. Okay. Do I sound like I'm back? 
You're back. You're back. Yeah. Okay. If I do go out, just keep rolling. It's, <laughs> it's part of the, the uh, finite conditions <laughs> of, of time here. Um, yeah. It, I, but it, I think you guys discussed exactly the point there. Um, there, there is this very bizarre way of, um, of taking this ideal and uh, making it so powerful to eradicate any kind of uh, connection to reality as we encounter and experience it. And this is, is it's a very odd thing. This is why I say irony, because these visions claim to have abandoned idealism, you know, they, they, that that most of how most of the engine that drives these visions, whether it's Marxism or or like a Hegelian picture, even though it has some idealistic dependencies, um, the the whole thrust is is that this is this is nature becoming, um, and this isn't an ideal that transcends reality. This is something that a people become conscious of through processes of of time. And matter and energy kind of doing thing, and so so what you have here is this very strange irony, and and one of the you know my reasons of turning to the topic of historicism is kind of I'm afraid you're cutting out some of how or historicism. Yeah, I think you're cutting out on us again in a pretty. Pretty bad way there, Tom. I'm sorry to say. Entered and dependent. So, uh, so historicism. We're talking about historicism now, and uh, I don't know if maybe if you could move to a different part of the house or something. I'd, I'm just just a suggestion. I don't know, but it was pretty bad. We didn't hear about uh, two sentences or three sentences there. So okay. let me. So maybe, I'm going to try to. I'm going to try to call in from my phone. Maybe that will. Glenn, you said I can do that. Is that correct? Yeah, it should be possible. Well, while while you're working on that, I know, Glenn, (laughs) that you've uh, talked a little bit about sort of the different kinds of historicism that, uh, you know, we can be referring to. So you're going to have to shut one of them off there, Tom, because you got feedback. Okay. So there you go. Now, that's actually a much clearer image. Okay, so this is how we're going to roll. <laughs> okay, yeah, that, that actually works a lot better. So, uh, but I'd asked Glenn uh, to talk a little bit about historicism. So, Glenn, I know you've talked about different kinds of historicism. Can you, can you tell us what you mean by that? Well, yeah, the, word, the, the, the problem that we run into is that the word historicism is used in probably a half a dozen different ways. Um, you know, can refer to an approach to historiography, can refer to an approach to society, um, you know, how you understand our place in the world, where it comes from. There are a lot of different ways the word is used. And, you know, as we're approaching it here, I think it would be really important for uh, Tom particularly, assuming we can keep him on, to, um, to define precisely how he's using it in contrast to presentism. I really right. kind of want to toss it back to him because, you know, he, he has a specific definition in mind here. Right. Now, Tom is still trying to get back to us. He was kind of with us and kind of, kind of a way. Now he's coming back in again. Okay. So, yeah, you might, want to, you might want to just sit down, Tom. Yeah, there you go. 
because I think when uh, we moved around, we, we lost you again. Okay. So right. uh, Glenn, Glenn was asking, what, what, can you give us a, some, uh, some a, a kind of a, a crisp uh, un, a sort of def definition of historicism that you're working yeah. with? Because yeah, there are different I'm, ways to think about it. That's right. Let me give you, okay, I'm going to give you it's someone even better, Oliver Donovan. I think he does a better job of defining it than me. And he sort of says, he, he really goes at the heart of, you know, contemporary historicism. And this is basically the thesis that all teleology is historical teleology. In other words, there aren't natural kinds and natural purposes, but everything that we would say about there being a certain goal to anything in history is itself the product of history and from the um, potencies of history. In other words, history is the whole container. It's not, uh, there's not a presupposition of a created order. Rather, history is itself that whole order. And so everything is imminent in history. And history is yeah, the whole, whole thing. Yeah, that's, that's generally how I've thought about it. Now, I like his... I like his approach in the sense that he's using the language of, of you know, sort of the Aristotelian tradition to sort of uh, collapse in on itself this way of thinking, this histor historicism. And, and what that necessarily means is that transcendence is only possible through a kind of process that lands you in the next phase of things. Yeah. Um, there is no kind of permanent thing that's <laughs> or right permanent but, things but there is a right side that's right <laughs> well because you, the, but even then the right side it seems to me is is more like you know uh uh you were uh getting at earlier tom with kind of this so, sort of process uh yes. whether it's understood materialistically or in the form of ideas with as like with hegel so it's Pro sort of like uh you, you're on the wrong side just because you're stuck in the past. That's right. That's right. Yeah. It, process, process becomes really in development, become the two, the two key ways of characterizing this. In other words, uh, you know, for example, any, any kind of meaning, purpose, or, or even, you know, anything really um, is defined not in terms of its essence or, or its created nature and kind, but in terms of development, whatever it is at a particular moment in the process. And of course, it, this is why when I said that there's a strange in this idea, it's kind of a historicist idealism. This is why you have a group of people who are suggesting um, that they can rise above this process with an ideal is because basically the present moment is the place in which history has produced the consciousness that allows the people to rise above it and direct it. And that's what gives it the, the power. So anything in the past is less than this full consciousness. Now, the thing about that that seems to me to be self-contradictory, of course, is that implicit in that is a value system that would imply that this is somehow better than what was. Yes. So, you know, how does that occur? Yeah, and I think that's one of the, the, the things uh, Donovan goes after is it um, actually, um, there are two great quotes, and I think his is the best uh, analysis, even though it comes out of this, this comes out of Resurrection and Moral Order, which is dated by at least several decades, but still there's been very few 
um, people reflect on it. Um, but one of the, the first things he noticed is a, is a quote. He talks, he goes, at the very heart of historicism is illuminated an observation by Hannah Arendt in her essay, The Concept of History. When she comments upon our modern habit of dating all chronology is uh, AD and BC, she goes, the decisive thing in our system is not that the birth of Christ now appears as the turning point of world history, but rather that now for the first time, the history of mankind reaches back into an infinite past to which we can add at will and into which we can acquire further as it stretches into the future. The twofold infinity of past and future eliminates all notions of beginning and end, establishing mankind in a potential of earthly immortality. In other words, what ends up happening by the elimination of creation and a limit um, to that creation is the fact that the human being becomes able to transcend those determinations and almost becomes immortal in this very historical process. And that's where my point is, presentism depends on that sort of historicist idealism. It eliminates creation and a crea created order of things and therefore stretches history all the way back into infinity and really just has this recycling of historical processes that are just unfolding and we happen to be caught up in a particular moment of that unfolding and we become Lord of the moment um, with no real teleology to connect ourselves to, no, nothing to define good and evil by. Yeah, yeah. It, it, as a historian, um, my, I, I find myself thinking, all right, I did my doctoral research on French Protestantism in the 16th century. Mm. So, French history, 16th century. Mm -hmm. you, you could find French historians who wrote about how the events in the 16th century were, you know, shaped the French Revolution. And the way they did this, it was almost like these things happened in the 16th century so that the French Revolution could occur. <laughs> Now, it's because of stuff like that that I absolutely hate, the, partly because of stuff like that, that I absolutely hate dealing with the French Revolution as a historian. It, it's just way too imperialistic for me. But, <laughs> you know, in terms of the way it cannibalizes the history for centuries before it. But that's the kind of thing you're talking about, I think, um, applied, you know, to a, a much more narrow range of things. This stuff happens in the past so that the present can occur or so that this other event can occur later which implies a kind of teleology. It implies a purposeful direction in history, which they at the same time deny. Yes, yes. And this allows them to, therefore to, to, to relate to any sort of imperfect embodiment of, of what ideals they hold as something worth destroying because it didn't, it didn't match up to the present consciousness that they are now. And so their way of dealing with it is not to say, wait a minute, these, these for example, monuments attest to the struggle of good and evil over time, the limits that they had, but also the, the way in which they strove to overcome things or embody certain ideals, to they didn't match the, the current consciousness 
So therefore, they have to be eliminated and eradicated from any determination of our, our future. Yeah, so as an example, um, just might have been yesterday, might have been today, they just removed the statue of Christopher Columbus in New Haven as part of the current iconoclasm. That statue was put up at a point when there was a lot of anti-Italian sentiment in America. Hmm. So the statue was put up as a way of saying, Italians belong here. We're part of this country's history. We do not deserve to be looked down upon or oppressed or anything like that. We're part of this. We've always been part of it. So it was actually put up in support of a minority group's place in American society. Hmm. And, and, and that's it is being destroyed or taken down. It wasn't destroyed, fortunately. Now it's being taken down because there's a different narrative that suits the current cultural climate that says that Christopher Columbus was uh, nothing significant, nothing important. He was just an evil dude. Well, and, th and this is the thing that uh, I, I was kind of trying to get at with, with my note about sort of willful ignorance. I, I think that, that one of the things that historicism does is that it, it obliterates history as an actual, you know, objective thing to study. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. In other words, there were things that happened in the past that happened in a certain way, and we, have a, we, we can kind of get close to an understanding, maybe not a perfect understanding, but at least approximate understanding of why things occurred. The same thing is true in Boston. You know, in the North End, there's Christopher Columbus, Christopher Park, Columbus Park, which, uh, of course, is right next to the old Italian neighborhood. So there was probably some kind of thing that went on to bring about the establishment of Christopher Columbus Park uh, for the reason you stated. And, and anyone who has any sort of appreciation for, for history, even as recent as, say, the turn of the 19th to the 20th century, knows that Italians were, were the subject of a lot of, of, of discrimination. Uh, my, my wife's family is Italian. They have stories about those days. Uh, they have, uh, you know, memories have been passed down of how they felt uh, looked down upon. And, and now there's, there's no reason to say, to compare, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying that we should spend our time comparing grievances. That's not the point. Yeah. The point is, is that what we have here is something that happened, something that people did to try to help people feel better about, you know, themselves. And now there are people who have come on the scene who have no interest at all in understanding the actual situation on the ground any time before their time. And to me, that's a problem. And, and it brings to my mind, you know, the question, what can we do or what has to be the case in order for us to retrieve some notion of historical truth? And my theory is that we need to retrieve some kind of sense of transcendent truth because <laughs> historical truth uh, ultimately will de depend upon permanent things. Even though history moves, permanent things help us judge history. And, and I think uh, in Donovan's uh, argument, which he, he, he's sort of a blend of the Augustinian and, and, and the Thomas traditions read through an evangelical and reformed light, high church, uh, evangelical reform life. But one of the things he's really, really doing is saying the same thing. He's saying, 
natural kinds and purposes. In other words, those in which God has um, formed and shaped the created order is presupposed in all historical becoming as a Christian understands it. These are not the product of it. They're not even the final fruit of it. They're what's presupposed in it. An actual providential history is, is a way in which time dealing with the fall and other things in relationship to the frustrations of creation is bringing the creation into what is already completed about it. It's, it's bringing it into its Sabbath. And so creation isn't the product of history. It's being brought through history to what ha has been created to be in its fullness. And so it's a very different understanding. Creation is the presupposition of all history. It's not the product of it. And that's right. a, that's, that goes very similarly um, to, to what you're saying there, is the transcendent aspects, not only of God, but of the created order that is presupposed in historic history's um, becoming and movement. Well, I think the, the question for me that kind of still lingers is, uh, you know, how do we recover uh, yeah. a sense of the true as opposed to the sort of thing that we're talking about here with historicism. That's at least one of the things that comes to mind. I know you wanted to say something, Glenn. I, I, I cut you off and I didn't mean to. Yeah, and actually I think I'm, I'm going in the direction of what, what you're asking here. Um, one of the things we need to keep in mind is that there is a genuine objective teleology. And this objective teleology shows up in the form of, well, all kinds of things we've talked about. We've talked about teleology in past episodes, going all the way back when we were actually in the corner pug. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, um, there, there's a natural end to not just events in history, but even to things like biology and stuff like that. We have to affirm and this is one of the things I think that, that our society gets wrong. We have to affirm that there is truth in the world, that there are things that are designed for purposes. Um, all of those kinds of things as a starting point, be, because if, if we can't establish, for example, even the issue of biological purpose, mm -hmm. is something objective about male and female. If we can't even establish that, then there is no way we're going to be able to establish anything as true or, or truly teleological in an objective sense about history. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, we're in a society that actually doesn't know what male and female is. With all of the biology and everything else we've studied, we, we, we have, we've got a culture that doesn't even understand that. Yeah, and that's, that itself is a part of historicism. Why? Because there isn't a true nature in which creation has been, you know, a kind and, and purpose, but it's all something that is only becoming through its development. And so what it is, is what it is at the end of its, its development, wherever it ends up, not um, in strong continuity to what it, it has already been a completed creation before history unfolds. And that's, I think, the significance of what a Donovan and, and historic Christianity is up to, is they're saying that um, they, they, they weren't historicists in that way. 
to where everything is in flux until the kind of, till it ends up where it ends up. And so you can't say anything true about the nature of anything because it's always at a moment of development and it hasn't fully become what it's meant to be. And see, that's the problem of this notion right. of, of natural, uh, of historical teleology is that it only is what it is once it finally has become what it's supposed to become. And this is what, you know, Jeffrey Wainwright would a years ago called self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Yeah, except it can never become what it's supposed to become because there is no supposed to. It is yeah. just becoming, it, it is constantly becoming and never arriving. Yes, yeah. that's right. Yeah. I think, you know, there's always winter and never Christmas. I mean, it's always you know. deferred. Yeah. Well, there are a couple of things that I think that uh, have, have presented us with some, some serious intellectual, uh, you know, sort of challenges to to be able to recover a sense of purpose in the nature of things. And I think the two things are, you know, the separation of fact values. Yeah. What, we, what we have with that is that, you know, essentially, you know, everything is reduced to material and efficient causation. And we're just yeah. trying to figure out how things work. So there's a, a question begged. Yeah. The question is, the, the thing that's begged is, is the mechanism, mechanistic understanding of nature. So yeah. we assume that nature is mechanistic and then our methods of studying it uh, reinforce the idea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's what science does. But the other thing I, I do think is Darwinism. And I, and I think Darwinism has captured the imagination of people in such a way that they cannot even sort of conceive of, of, of sort of uh, uh, transcendent structures. And what I'm getting at is forms, of course, platonic, I'm using platonic language. But yeah. many people believe that, that what Darwinism implies is that things can kind of develop in any way that, you know, you could want. That, that things have, there, there are no sort of external constraints that, you know, there really are all possible worlds out there, yeah. but there's no possible. There's just all worlds out there, <laughs> if you get what I'm saying. You know, at, yeah. least, at least with Leibniz, with all possible worlds, he was, he was at least constraining, yeah. you know, the, 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 the options to what's mathematically, you know, possible. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I mean, Darwin, my favorite example is Darwin believed so much in the malleability of species that he attempted to create new ones through breeding pigeons. And he discovered <laughs> that, I'm pretty sure it was pigeons, he discovered that you can take them only up to a certain point and there's a hard boundary beyond which you cannot take them. He didn't know about genes, but genetically. Right. Um, and uh, the way I put this is that you can take a goldfish and give it popped eyes, change its color, split its fins, and do all of those kinds of things. But you can't turn a goldfish into a goldfinch. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Yep. See, there are limits. There, there, there's a great deal of variation, but there are limits beyond which you cannot go. And the problem is, we've forgotten that. And I, I, and this gets me back to my willful, willful ignorance. You, you remember Scott Peck's "The People of the Lie." Yep. You know, yeah. he defines evil as militant ignorance. And what, <laughs> what, what militant ignorance implies, of course, is what you've said earlier, uh, Glenn, is that you know, but you don't want to know. Yeah. You're in active denial. And, in fact, you're in violent active denial. 
And I think that we as a culture are in violent active denial when it comes to certain realities, because we simply know that if we accept those realities, where they lead, they lead to the big G, God. And we don't want to go there. Yeah. And this is where the historicism and presentism come together. Yeah. Um, That, you know, presentism assumes that the way we think things are today is the way they're supposed to be. And therefore, the past only exists as prelude. It's only there as uh, the past is prelude to the present. I mean, that's the only purpose that the past serves. So we look at the past teleologically because it takes us to our current greater state of enlightenment. Mm-hmm. And, and the yeah. problem is we're not really more enlightened. We just kind of like to think we are. In fact, in well, many ways, we're far stupider. Exactly. Yes. Well, yes. well, and that's, that's, that is the, you know, uh, uh, one of the things uh, uh, Donovan hits on is he talks about that is the way in which historicism and, and, and sort of naturalism similarly um, end up with this kind of that, that everything that allows for some kind of self-transcendence, if you will, is imminent within. There's a sort of Pelagian element. It's within the, the created. And he contrasts this with classic Christianity and the Reformation in particular. And he puts it this way. He goes, he's talking, uh, criticizing what gets lost when historicism takes over. He says, gone then is the mystery of God's dealings. He goes, the inscrutability of historical events which reduce the prophet to tears. And gone is the decisive role of Christian proclamation to make all men see what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. In making known, that is, the insearchable riches of Christ. He goes, when the reformers laid down their criteria of redemption as sola gratia, solo Christo, they intended to safeguard the point that is lost in historicism. The fulfillment of history is not generated imminently from within history. It is from grace alone. It is the work of God within history. It is to speak of a work from outside. This is the transcendent. God is not merely responding to necessities intrinsic, but he's doing something new. This transformation is in keeping with the creation, but in no way directed by it. So in other words, it's in continuity with the created order, but is not from um, potentiality within it. It's from God's resources. And he goes on to make a strong comparison between the Reformation emphasis there with the Greek traditions um, talk of theosis, where man's salvation and destiny is, uh, goes completely beyond what is within the imminent possibilities of his being, um, but drawn completely by God and God's own reality. So it's this transcendent, the transcendent dimension is that which allows the Christian vision to have roots in the truth and also not divinize history in, in the way in which um, I think historicism and even Marxism does, ironically. Yeah, yeah. Well, when we think about um, the imminent and we think about uh, teleology, um, we, uh, I think with teleology, we wonder where did the purpose come from? The yeah. purpose has to have some kind of uh, external, uh, you know, sort of a pull, as in Aristotle, or yeah, uh, or there has to be some kind of creation in which the kind of the 
the purpose is somehow implanted and works itself yeah. out. But there's always a kind of something outside. Yes. That, that's at work. Yeah. And I, and I think when you asked earlier, how do we retrieve? I, th I think the issue um, from classic Christianity, drawing off of scripture and the rich tradition uh, of reflection on that, is um, formal and final causes have to be brought back into the picture. We cannot marginalize them, and we, nor should we need to. Um, the arguments that people like Francis Bacon and the rest made um, were made under a different set of circumstances, and they were concerned about something very different. Um, but if they would have looked at where their emphasis ended up, they'd be, I think they'd be shouting along with us, oh, wait a minute, I didn't mean to bracket them, bracket them out for good, I just meant to not make them such that they um, eclipse the other cause forms of causality that we need to look at. Right, right. Yeah. Then the question is, you know, how do we how do we bring it back? I think I think this is kind of where I I spend all my time, you know, in terms yeah. of how, how do we how do we bring this back? So you know, for example, today I was uh, conducting a class on family uh, life and uh, with some folks in India. And so we're doing this Zoom thing, and and what I what I did is I I'm talking about male and female, and I'm talking about how biology is not merely a fact, but also a kind of calling. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a sense in which uh, Adam, who's you know made from the dust of the earth, he's the earth man, Adama. The, he's 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 an earthling. He's literally made of the soil. Is uh, given the task of working with the soil and making it fruitful and he's placed in the garden and then the curse has to do with his making you know he's no longer able to make in the way he would he would have if he hadn't fallen then we see with the woman her work has to do with what childbearing that's the thing that she biologically is made for there there's no way that anyone else can do what she does. <laughs> and so, you know, there, and it's not merely the fact that she has a womb or has a uterus or whatever, but there's, there's something about the female form in general that uh, adds up to the perfect nurturing, you know, hu human embodiment mm -hmm. that is needed for uh, caring for small children. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, um, two things come to mind here. One of them is uh, this is a point that Mario Grillian Pete makes all the time that the, the failure of a lot of modern storytelling is that they try to turn women into men. And it just doesn't work. Right. But the, the other thing, you know, when, when, I, when I, I try to get my students to think in terms of you know, there may be a reason for the traditional gender roles. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I take them back to the Stone Age. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I say, all right, let me ask you a question. If you're a woman who's eight months pregnant, do you want to be the one who's trying to take down the woolly mammoth with a stone-tipped spear? <laughs> you know, and my, 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 this is my guess, uh, Glenn. Tell me if I'm wrong. They don't want to answer the question. Well, actually, the interesting thing is most of my students just look at that and say, yeah, you know, there's a point there. Um, then I point out that, you know, when it comes to um, taking care of infants, 
who is biologically equipped to deal with a newborn? It's the mother who can nurse them. You know, I actually, I actually had, I actually had a woman who was a reporter who was reporting on an event that I spoke at who challenged that very thing in my to my face. Hmm. Well, That's where we are. Well, you see, now the the way they get around it is, well, that was true in the Stone Age. It isn't true now because we've got technologies and all of those kinds of things. You know, a woman who's a good shot is going to take down the woolly mammoth with a gun. And so there's really no need for sex differences now. Well, see, this is exactly... Uh, That's where they go. Yeah, Donovan goes right after this. And what he says, what they're confusing is the difference between there being an objective created order, which is actually ineradicable. Nature is always going to tend this way. doesn't matter what we keep doing with techne and technology. His point is, however, we are free creatures to, to orient and enact ourselves in relationship to it for our flourishing or not. And by not, we have been given a certain space in which we can actually disrupt in terms of our flourishing and the flourishing of things around us um, what otherwise would have been our rule and proper proper um, um, dominance of creation towards its, its cultivation and flourishing. And he said, by doing it, we frustrate things um, and, you know, and we introduce all kinds of things that aren't for flourishing and everything else, but we do nothing in terms of eradicating what is, what is, um, you know, as, as um, Donovan puts it, what is ineradicably stamped. You, you can't get rid of it. It's stamped on the very definition of creation. And so, yes, we can play with it. We can do all kinds of things with it, but it's always going to tend back to that. You don't erase the fact that nature endows and orients and is regulated by the way in which we are created to be. Uh, uh, for example, the female with nurturing and the, the embodied capacities to, to sustain that. That doesn't go away even though we start playing with it. <laughs> That's what it is oriented to do. That's what it's created to do. We are the ones who have to come in and start interrupting it, right? But even in the freedom to reject that created order, it still doesn't take away its stamp to be like that and do that. So we're not getting rid of anything. And to say, sit here and say we're at a time where we don't need that anymore, it just begs the question. Um, well, it's endowing it that way. Yeah, and not just that, but we we're actually in a kind of a, a suicide down, you know, sort of spiral. Yeah. I just, I just read a piece in Newsweek about uh, the bottom falling out on, you know, it, it seems like it just gets worse every, every year when it comes to fertility. Um, yeah. You know, what, what we're looking at right now is a economic cataclysm. Yeah. Uh, and these people are just living in Looney Tunes if they think that this is good news. Because yeah. what it means is the, the collapse of the economy. People are the economy. The economy is not a machine that yeah. just can be, you know, sort of greased and... and there primed. has never been an economy that stayed even stable with a declining population. It has never happened. Yeah. So what we're looking at is bulldozing. The economy always declined more. Yeah, we're looking at bulldozing neighborhoods, uh, life savings going away. We're looking at uh, pensions that can't be funded. We're looking at 
tax revenues that can't be collected. We're talking about a series of dominoes going out from the center in all directions. And we can, we can say that among the, some of the few things that are you know, really key to this, one of those things is population decline. And you just can't import people. You know, you well, can, you the, my argument about the European um, uh, open doors to immigration from the Middle East is that Europeans aren't having any babies, partly because the tax structure is so high it makes it incredibly expensive, partly because of a different set of values. But in order to keep the welfare state running, you need, a, you need people. So they're opening the doors to get the people in so that they can support the welfare state. But in the process, ultimately, they're committing civilizational suicide. And the, it's, it's non-fungible. I mean, we're talking about large masses of un-sort of uh, enculturated people who don't share the culture right. and its values and don't even know how to plug into. This is what the Swedes are learning the hard way. Don't even know how to plug into the available jobs that are there. Now, there is, uh, you know, other stuff going on, I know. But, but, but it's a kind of crude and mechanistic way of thinking about all this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it, and it all comes from this kind of, on the one hand, this detachment from natural created kinds and ends, and then the replacement of them somewhere else, whether it's the imposition of the will, you know, that's where we're getting that with the enlightenment or whether it's just merely the, the, the kind of, um, continuous um, potentialities we get to um, to negotiate with that history supplies us. And those are really the only two things that the, the kind of modern has to deal with um, because they've rejected the, the full Christian vision. Um, and, and so our way back, you know, what is, what is the way back? I mean, it's a, it's a hard way back in many ways. I think we're just learning a lot of the wisdom of, of maybe figures in Christianity and classical culture that, we were even as Christians easy to dismiss and say they, they kind of lost their relevance. All of a sudden they, they're kind of front page if, if we have an antenna for it. Um, I mean, I think uh, from a theologian point, I mean, one is we need to get, I mean, actually you want to go on an iconoclastic rampage. You need to get the voluntarism and nominalistic God out of the pulpit and, and the therapeutic and the pragmatic. Um, but but down that, sh that you know what that does, Tom's that shuts down ninety five percent of evangelicalism right there. Well, my you know as the as uh, was was it uh, Ratzinger once said as he became Pope of the Catholic Church, maybe it's time for the church to become smaller. Um, um, but the on the on the flip side is what 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 is the form it takes, and I think this is the the the, the absolute commitment to truth truthful enactment of our created natures and we have to plug our head back into um what genesis um spells out for us i think in the most beautiful way of of talking about being form and and the, the shape it takes in time and then as the new testament talks about it in in its um in its vindication its continuance but also aimed towards its fulfillment we have we ha we can't and so that gets all the way down into like you're talking about the household having children it comes down all to all these things that are things we do um we can't abandon the task in in the proclaim the good news to all nations of also being fruitful and multiplying right 
um, and we can't abandon in the name of, of bringing the message of absolute justice um, under Christ of um, the family, the household, and, and the flourishing of the human creature socially and spiritually. Those have to go hand in hand. So top down the theological vision of retrieval, but bottom up the absolute commitment to the forms that, and, and, and uh, ends that, that Christianity has posited classically, I think. Yeah, the bad news, of course, is that uh, the ascendant wing within the Reformed world uh, is the, the, the force, uh, is actually the force of decay. The, uh, yeah. all, all the people who uh, kind of uh, are in the limelight, uh, who are looked at as sort of the, the means by which we can kind of stay current and relevant, yeah. are, are actually introducing you know, the very things that are going to just kind of speed up the collapse. I can see yeah. you're, 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 you're just chomping at the bit, Glenn. <laughs> well, no, I'm just, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in kind of a weird position because um, I work in a secular environment. You know, I'm in a state university. And I've really more or less adopted the thinking that you know what, we can't really impose these things. We make arguments, we try to convince people and so on. And that's what we do that, you know, that that's our job. And I think that that's correct up to a point. But the problem that I see, you know, even as I look at myself, if I'm going to be honest about it, the problem as I see it is that I'm too nice. I give people way too much I don't take as strong a stand as I should for things that are true because yeah. I know people don't share my same presuppositions and therefore my stance on this particular issue, pick one, uh, my stance on this may not make sense to them because they come from a different set of presuppositions. So I have to take that into account as I'm presenting you know, my stuff and so on. And the net result is, for me, I find myself often in a situation where I never affirm anything I don't believe, but I leave plenty of room for it. Well, you know, I... I that is, in, in a lot of ways, typical. I, you know, I think I'm actually more hard-line than a lot of people in evangelicalism <laughs> are. Well, but I, that's typical of the problem. Yeah, I think that's right. And you are a lot more hardline. You've got a, you've actually got a lot of stuff out there that people could actually read <laughs> and watch. There are there are there are plenty of people out there that don't even do that. But but I think that the thing uh, what it what it presents us with is kind of a a kind of a set of alternatives. You got the kind of the David French approach, you know. Then you've got kind of the Doug Wilson approach, and then you got kind of like the collapse of history approach. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so like the class of history approach is basically, hey man, it's all going to pan out, and it's going to pan out in a way that's very unpleasant for all those 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 people. You know, and we've seen this, you know, a lot. This is not like this is not like the first time we've seen this movie. We've seen this movie again and again and again yeah. and again and again and again and again. And <laughs> the players, the names are different, but they but the but the parts are the same, and. Every once in a while, you got you you have you have a Cicero, or you've got somebody like him 
who's saying, you know, like a Noah saying, Hey, we're going down the tubes here. And then everybody is like, you know, and then after everybody's dead and we're picking up the pictures, <laughs> we go back and we read Cicero. <laughs> <laughs> the ones, the ones that managed to, 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 to make it. Right. There's a cartoon of a couple of old guys sitting in a library and the caption is, those who don't study history are condemned to repeat it. Those who don't study history are condemned to sit by helplessly while others repeat it. <laughs> well, that's, that's kind of where think. we are. That's right, right. Yeah, that's kind of where we are. You know, it's very... I, yeah, I, just, just one last thought, Tom. You know, I mentioned Doug. You know, Doug has this, uh, this philosophy he refers to as the serrated edge. And it's, uh, the, it's, it's this sort of uh, tart uh, but humorous approach to things. And... And he's absolutely fearless. You know, he, he'll walk into a room of people who want to shoot him and, uh, and he'll, spend, you know, he'll, he'll say what he has to say and, and leave. And they'll, they'll record it and, and all the people who want to shoot him really looks foolish. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, but he just came out with a book that, uh, that I got the advanced review copy of and it's great. Hmm. It's, it's, uh, I've, I've only read like the first uh, chapter and the title of the book is ride sally ride it's about it's inspiring my mustang sally and it's all about a sex bot and and, it, and it's it's a story about kind of the collapse of american civilization uh told from kind of the perspective of of this uh, sort of uh colorado springs evangelical kind of top tier family <laughs> <laughs> and his description of this family is just absolutely hilarious because they're they're so they're, you know they're it, it's just so kind of a you know sort of riddled with this sort of subtle kind of uh, uh, Bertie Wooster you know Jeeves kind of humor. He's really good. At that. <laughs> He's making fun of the evangelical elite in just this marvelous way and showing showing you kind of from the inside out how they're complicit with the collapse of our civilization. <laughs> yes. Yes. But anyway, but, but do you think, uh, I, I, I actually know this is the case. A lot of the people who would never admit that they like Doug Wilson, read him, uh, you know, <laughs> voraciously <laughs> and will even paraphrase him, but won't quote him. and won't, won't attribute. <laughs> it's that's the kind of situation we have. Doug is probably the, the, you know, one of the most interesting people in the reformed world, if not evangelicalism. And it's because he doesn't care what yeah. you think. <laughs> and, and what he, what he embodies in both thought and practice is, is a non-historicist approach yeah. to the faith. He, he, redemptive history. Yes. But historicists know. And, you know, and, and this is what cultivated the ground that readies evangelicalism to get hung up with presentism and its trends is mm -hmm. the fact that it is already, it, it, as it moved away from classic Christianity, it already embraced teleology as historically and developmental coupled with the therapeutic. And so it's caught up in the same dynamics that everything else in culture is. So now all of a sudden, if the trend goes towards this particular um, understanding of, uh, of sort of presentism and its iconoclasm, all, all of a sudden the evangelical church is gonna run along with it. Why? It shares the same everything. Doug doesn't. Doug represents a different, a different strand of Christianity aligned with the classical and reform vision that hasn't accommodated itself and is easy to peer through the shallowness of this cheap alternative.
Well, you know, we've got to add into that. I might as well lose the rest of our audience here. Um, <laughs> Go for it. You, you have to add into that the impact of dispensational theology. Yeah, right. Because if yeah. you have an eschatology that says it's all going to burn and um, all that matters is that you save as many people as possible, you don't want to rearrange the deck chairs on the Titanic, then... <laughs> What you do is you adopt every technology and every trend in society as a way of being all things to all people so that by all means you may save some. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, and I've, I've, heard, I've heard that logic directly from the mouths of the, of the kind of people we're, we're thinking about. Yeah. Yeah, and, and the net result is you jump on whatever the current bandwagon is. Right now it's Black Lives Matter, so you jump on that particular bandwagon and you ride it um, because this is a way of being relevant and showing that you really care and that you are going to hopefully bring some into the fold, except they never actually get to the evangelism part of that. <laughs> and, and there's no real shape to the fold, you know, and that's the, that's the other thing. I mean, right. what is the Christian life, but truthful enactment of our creatureliness, right? The restoration to act in accord with what we were created to be. I mean, what is sin? It's, it's the, the inability to truthful and truthfully enact our creatureliness, right? It's all it's and and so, because there, there is an actual form and shape to, you know, this is what scripture talks about is obedience, right? Obedience to a law that is, is um, the presupposition of the creation. And so when we order ourselves towards flourishing, we're doing nothing more than enacting the shape and form that is implicit in the very created order, which itself has its ground in and the character and purposes of God. So it's all connected that way. When these movements meet, see, see, you know, that the whole point of Christianity is just merely to get people, quote unquote, um, saved from the, the present age, yet they use the present age as the means to do it. Um, yeah, they're, they're undernourished in terms of what form the Christian life takes. And this is why that kind of, you know, is what we, it's a debate years ago in evangelicalism, you know, the lordship debate. But the way in which a certain kind of um, what they would call then an, a certain kind of Arminianism um, had no shape to the Christian life. It was merely just, you know, an assent to Christ's saving work. And so because of that, it, it, it didn't have any kind of form to it or shape. And so it was OK. As long as you assented to what Christ did, therefore you were in you were saved from the present and current age. But it had no shape that you needed to conform to. <laughs> and so yeah. therefore there's no created order there's no you know fulfillment of it and there is no vindication of creation that's redemption so yeah it's it's a very thin theology yeah, yeah. and it tends in, towards in essence, they were they're inverting romans 12 too yeah you know you're not you're not to be conformed to the world but you're to be transformed well increasingly they're busy trying to figure out how to conform to the world so that you know, yeah. the goal theoretically is to win some and all of that kind of thing. But Paul tells us in Romans, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And my hunch is that they, they also have sadly, in the current forms, as I've heard them, they've sadly bought to the idea that the, the, um, the historical moment, uh, history and its unfolding, has imminently within it the resources um, to bring someone into 
conversion. <laughs> and that's, that's my problem with that whole movement is, is it thinks that the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age, is the same as the spirit of the ages. Right. You know, in, in my argument, right from the start, from when I started getting involved in talking about critical theory and such, is that the fundamental mistake we make is that racism is a sin. That is correct. But critical theory is not the way to deal with it. Yeah. Christianity has the resources within itself to deal with the problem of racism, but instead we're operating with a system, a worldview that is anchored in anti-Christian ideas. Yeah. 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 There are a couple of things to deal with racism, but critical theory ain't the way to do it. That's yeah. right. I think a couple of things come to mind. You know, when you were talking earlier, Tom, about Arminian theology, that's a, that's a world that I'm familiar with. I come out of that world. And uh, one of the things that sort of, sort of uh, uh, appalled me is uh, as I, as I uh, grew in my understanding, particularly in the, the sort of the, the, the history of, the, of thought uh, in the West, uh, as I as I as that occurred, I became more and more aware of how kind of Arminian uh, theology was an expression of a particular phase <laughs> in that development, yeah. and then yeah. and then in the United States, you know, with the uh, with the revivalist and, and you know the camp meeting movement and all the stuff that was going on in the 19th century, how that was an expression of Romanticism, and yeah. and, and <laughs> you know yeah, you, yeah. you got you got this sort of thing that just keeps happening, and. Uh, but your your point was that I, that that actually was instrumental in taking me out of Arminian sort of an Arminian framework and and bringing me into a reform framework was this idea that within the reform tradition there appeared to be uh, a a a solid thing <laughs> yeah. to, 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 to by which you can conform your your life uh, and you know pursue growing in the image of Christ, but not in sort of an individualistic way, yeah. you know, sort of a, you know, entirely within the framework of, the, of a personal relationship, which yeah. is just like, you know, kind of a psychologizing of the, of the subjective uh, sort of real sort of reinterpretation of the Christian faith and narrow and a narrowing yeah. of it down. What we, what we, what we had, you know, at least in the beginning with the reformation was a, was a, a, an understanding of reality, you know, yeah. and, and human place in reality. And, and I think uh, one of the things that's disturbed me recently mm-hmm. and is the fact that that's not held in the reform world. I'm yeah. seeing this same movie again yeah. in the reform world. And I, and what's discouraging is, is I, I don't have the, 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 I, well, I don't. I don't even know. I don't yeah. even believe that if David Wells himself, <laughs> David Wells himself, came to our presbytery, yeah, and chastised all the people that you're talking about, I don't even know if he would be heard. So I don't even know if it's a matter of having the right degrees or having produced, in, in, you know, the books or having the the, yeah. the, the yeah. intellectual acumen. I think yeah. that there's something going on here. Yes, that completely discourages me. Yeah, I think, and I think in the reform world in particular, it came through the increasing, I mean, there are other avenues, 
I mean, just culture in the manifold ways that it impacts us. But one of the ways it came in theologically was this shift from classical Christian views of God to theological personalism, um, because that allows, um, because God, God's immutable attributes, essential attributes, no longer govern God's relations to the creatures, and therefore God becomes something of determined by God's interaction with his creatures. Therefore, historicism enters the theological picture, and then therefore all the, the created understanding. So, so, it's as though historicism swallowed God. Swallows God, yeah. It's, it's, it's as uh, Oliver Donis says, once, the, once um, the story has, is everything, there's nothing for the story to be about. So even the story about God is it's the story that's primary, not God. And so therefore God, God is not the, 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 um, the infinite source of all things, including the, the, the meaning of the story. He's just one agent within it, like any other character within a story. And so because of that, therefore, there's this loosening of creation and its ordering and then its truthful enactment in redemption. There's a, there's a ripping of it from those roots and then making it developmental and psychological. And this is what we're dealing with there. It's, it's therefore, we're at a particular zeitgeist in time, which is the fulfillment of things up till now. And it has this, the, the fate now, the, the moment now has the definitive stamp of God's providence, and therefore it overrides everything else. And so therefore being caught up in that is, is the expression of true Christianity rather than truthful enactment of our created kinds. <laughs> so, I mean, that's really what's going on with, I think, almost all, in almost all um, churches that ha- are moving f- away from classical Christianity to these, to these variations on a, on a, on a theme. Yeah. Yeah. Consider this is one connected to that. This is one of the things I've been thinking about recently for well over a thousand years, maybe more like 1200, 1300, 1400 years. The center of Christian worship was not the sermon. It was the Eucharist. (laughs) Which, you know, whatever you may think about sacramental theology, what it does is say that we have an embodied faith, that it isn't just a matter of ideas, it isn't just a matter of doctrine, it isn't just a matter of the zeitgeist or anything like that. There is something tangible and real and connected to the mundane world that is fundamental to the Christian faith. It's not just a bunch of ideas. Contrary to Francis Schaeffer, who says the gospel is flaming ideas. <laughs> he's right. But those ideas extend beyond just ideas into the significance of matter, the significance of the physical world, the significance of embodiment, all of those things. And, and the significance of history the right way. Exactly. And, and, and this is, I, I think this is very, um, and, and what happens sadly is in the historicist that embodiment and gets interpreted as becoming, um, you know, in a, in a very, you know, in a, in a way that classical Christians wouldn't do it. So sometimes they'll move towards a sacramental understanding merely to talk about the way in which God becomes vulnerable, right, by taking on incarnation. 
Um, but this is why the classic historic understanding of Christology and the heresies is significant. This is explains, I mean, if you read Jürgen Moltmann, for example, which I don't advise, but if you do critically, I mean, this is where you get all this. He's got all the Christian jargon, but the, then you watch him play after play after play, redefine Christianity, historicist, Marxist, and, and all these other directions. And, and of course, just about every, uh, anyone teaching in, in the theology departments has been impacted by this. And, you know, and you see this stuff everywhere. And, yeah. uh, yeah. 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 And, and in many places that you would, uh, you would think would be immune. You, you see, yeah. I think that's one of the things, one of the things that has, uh, you know, I, I'm a pastor, and so I, I, I deal with the challenge of, of you know, trying to, to uh, re, you know, s speak to people who are busy just trying to make a living. And, yeah. and a, lot of, a lot of these things uh, just uh, don't appear at first to be necessarily uh, significant enough to, to, to warrant some concern about. And then what follows is a series of no, you know, a, a sort of a series of surprise sort of, I can't believe what's happening. I can't believe what's happening. I can't believe what's happening. And in each case, you, you know, I feel like saying, I told you so, I told you so, I told you so. <laughs> but, but, but it's like they, want, they, they think it's going to stop at that moment and just won't continue. And, I, and I'm like, no, it's gonna, this is, we're not at the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to this and then this and then this and they're just like no that's impossible and then no I can't believe it happened and, you know this is it's like this routine that we go through but uh, I was just with a with a, a, a fellow last uh, last night or the night before and we were talking about uh, some of these these things and uh, what he's observed is what I've observed and that is you know you noted just a minute ago uh, Francis Schaeffer's flaming ideas idea. Mm -hmm. And uh, <laughs> what, what we have, uh, what, what this guy observed is that, is that the children of people who thought Christianity was just a series of, of correct definitions. Yeah. <laughs> you know what the yeah. kind of people I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's a series of correct definitions. They're the ones who are the fathers and mothers of the, of the social justice warriors in our churches now. Now, 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 those kids are actually two or even three or maybe four steps removed from reality. When I mean generationally. They, you're, you're talking about Frankie Schaefer, right? <laughs> <laughs> kind of like I, I a Frankie just, Schaefer. I just wanted to be clear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, but the idea, though, is that, is that there were people who thought that, who, who sort of had the, uh, the idea that if we got all the ideas right, that there would just yeah. be sort of like this, we've arrived at true Christianity. Yeah, and yeah. and that there were no sort of uh, fundamental structures uh, into our, in, yeah. in terms of our lives and how we're they're ordered. You know, this gets, yeah. gets back to your point, Glenn, about the Eucharist and how that grounds us in a, in sort of the physical world. But even those people, what I've noticed <laughs> is, is sometimes when those people get a hold of liturgical theology, they're enamored with it from a kind of yeah. aesthetic point of view. Yeah. And they may even say the right things about, you know, the, the real world. But, but their whole approach to the real world is a feat. So, like, let me give you an example. I was talking about this sort of thing with some guy. And I was talking about physical reality. And what does he go to? He goes to cooking. 
And I'm like, well, yeah, I was kind of thinking like building a house, <laughs> something that would require, you know, getting outdoors and sweating and maybe getting hurt. <laughs> I wasn't thinking about, you You've never know. had my cooking. If you don't <laughs> I don't know what kind of cooking you do, Chris, but we have to kill the beast. <laughs> well, but not, th not this, not actually no, what just... I was thinking about was more the, the, uh, the gourmand sort of the sort of the eating yeah well, he he was wrapped up in the sort of the sensuous sort of appreciation of the food now i'm, I'm the, all for yeah, that the, the chef life <laughs> but 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 refined and yeah. uh you know to a degree that is really into my mind distasteful <laughs> you, know, you know but but my friend that i was with the other night you know he comes from a uh a fairly, uh, you know, uh, sort of rough blue collar black background. He's a Finn, by the way. In fact, he's a Finn and Scots Irish, just like you. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I love that combination. <laughs> and you actually know him, but I'm not going to mention yeah. him on the show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but because of that, um, you know, he's grounded in a kind of reality that is, you know, visceral and hard and calloused. And whenever he comes across these quizzlings with their soft hands and their sensitivities, he's just revolts. I mean, it's almost like there's a kind of physical desire to puke, if you know yeah, what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> Nausea in a different yeah, sense. Than <laughs> yeah, and these are the and these are the up and coming preacher boys who are yeah. planting churches in places like downtown Seattle. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, there. I mean, there's a whole web of ideas, and we could probably do like a, a whole series on that. But it, there is, there is, you know, the the many ways in which um, Christian cultivation um, and and the having to to actually live a life that has a closer connection to to the created order um, definitely fills in. Um, much of what Christianity is about as opposed to this kind of technological version of Christianity. What do I mean by that? Well, Glenn was talking about the Eucharist. The Eucharist has in and of itself and classic liturgy, it's not detached from the world. It's the, the, it's the reproduction of the pattern of agriculture and the cycles of creation and all of this. So there is a very holistic, I mean, when you're talking about classic Christianity, there is a holistic approach to that that is tied into the very for Genesis, redemption, salvation history. So your day-to-day -day work on on the you know on the farm and the building of this and 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 everything else is connected to that whole vibration of creation. And liturgy and church do the same thing. Eucharist does the same thing. But the buffers of the Enlightenment and technology have so disconnected us that it becomes this, this uh, self-centered um, um, heresy, if you will. And it is, not, it is not Christianity, if you really want to be honest. <laughs> yeah. and, that, and that's a good place to end because we've kind of gone a little long. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In a lot of directions. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Anything you want to say as we conclude, Glenn? I said enough to get myself fired. I think I've done. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Anything else, Tom? No, it was, it was fun as always. 
Well, uh, thanks a lot for listening to the Theology Podcast. We appreciate your interest, and we appreciate all the people who listen and write to us. Uh, I guess the only thing I'd like to say as we conclude is we've got a, a big event in uh, Nashville coming up in October, and our uh, podcaster, Glenn Sunshine, is going to be speaking at it. It's the Fight, Laugh, Feast Conference. It's going to be from October 1st to the 3rd. Uh, if you want to learn more about that, go to the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network and let them know you're coming. Yeah, anyway. let me add that the topic I've been in, assigned is enchantment, metaphor, and sexuality. Yeah. <laughs> I'm interested in hearing what I have to say about that one. Yeah, I am too. Who gave you that? Uh, Gabriel Ranch. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay. Well, that's that's fascinating. Anyway, so I'll be there. <laughs> yeah, and I'm hoping to be there. So. Right, right. Anyway, thanks a lot again. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye.